Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jettikin. Hey. Hey. Should we thank our lovely patrons? Of course. Okay, so... We did not do Patreons last week, so let's thank from the past two weeks the people who donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. We had Chris, Abby, Shannon, Namphon, Courtney, Stephanie, Kylie, Anne, Joy, Polly, Rachel, Michael, Sam, Shannon, Amy, Ness the Dragon, Maisie, Cassandra, Jill, Brianna, someone named I'm Just Shy is all. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Marissa, Megan, Sarah, Lauren, Lisa, Andrew, Sophia, Danielle, John, Carrie, Tracy, Jessica, and Emily. Thanks, guys. That was a lot. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. And we will have last week's episode. We just haven't gotten the file back. So right. you'll be getting an extra probably this week. It, it'll um, be a surprise. Yeah. You'll get an extra episode. <laughs> <laughs> we're really excited because October means we're doing our all movie versus reality with a focus on horror movies. We did this last year and it was a really fun little stretch of episodes. So we're doing it again, um, and that's horror movies that are based on true crimes or true stories. So to kick it all off, I have one that happens to be an insane story that inspired one of my all-time favorite horror movies and porn search terms, Stepfather. (laughs) Rachel, (laughs) do you love this movie? I fucking love The Stepfather. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about the movie at the end. Yeah. Um, so if you, yeah. So if you don't know, uh, this movie was inspired by the story of John List, who was one of the OG family annihilators. Uh, and his story is wild. So for this book, I kind of, uh, for this episode, I uh, used a book called Death Sentence by Joe Sharkey. There was an article by Timothy Benford from the Associated Content and like a lot of stuff online on this case. So right. if you're interested, Google it. And there's a ton of pictures and everything. So yeah. Okay, so let's get started. John List was born in 1925 in Bay City, Michigan to German-American parents. The family was devoutly religious and John's dad taught Sunday school at their Lutheran church. List was described as a child as being aloof, cold with a few friends, and that pretty much stayed the same his whole life, that he was always that way. He had a really complicated um, relationship with his mother, Alma, who was called domineering and overprotective. So kind of a classic bad situation, like super religious parents and a domineering, controlling mother. When he was 18, he enlisted in the army during World War II. And after being discharged, he attended the University of Michigan, eventually getting a master's in accounting. John was recalled to active duty during the Korean War in 1950, and while he was at an army base in Virginia, he met a woman named Helen Taylor, who was an army widow with a young child named Brenda. They were married in December of 1951, just a few months after meeting. After being discharged, the family eventually moved to Michigan, and John began his career in earnest working in accounting and as an audit supervisor at a company in Kalamazoo. John continued to rise quickly through the corporate ranks, and he and Helen had three more children, Patricia, John Jr., and Frederick. In 1958, John was supervising the entire accounting department at that point, so he really was pretty successful, but things at home were not going as well as his career. Helen had become increasingly emotionally unstable and was also an alcoholic. Brenda got married very young, basically to get out of the house in 1960. And that same year, List and his family moved to New York because he got a job at Xerox. 
1965, he, he got an even more lucrative position at a bank in New Jersey, and he moved his family, which at that point included his elderly mother, Alma, to Breeze Knoll, a 19-room Victorian mansion at 431 Hillside Avenue in the affluent town of Westfield, New Jersey. Have you ever seen this home? No. Is it cool looking? Uh, there's pictures online. It's a massive 19 room mansion. Like it's a huge fucking house. I don't know why, but for some reason when I was a little kid, I always wanted to live in a Victorian mansion. Yeah. I, I think mean, it's because cool. I, I think because I was like a creepy kid and I thought those were like haunted kind well, of houses. Well, it's also very San Francisco. There's yeah, tons of Victorian houses. I, I liked, I like that style as well. Um, cause it's just lots of cool details, right? Like gingerbready stuff yeah. happening and yeah. I like it. So it can be creepy even though it is kind of cute too. Yeah. Uh, so the purchase of this home really became an albatross around John's neck. He was spending way more than he was earning at this point, And as his financial woes escalated, so did the tensions with his family who, according to John, weren't living up to his idea of what constituted moral behavior. List would eventually take out two mortgages on the home and his bank account quickly depleted. His daughter, Patricia, became active in her high school drama club, and she was kind of a popular teen, and that really disturbed her strict religious dad. Like, he did not like her being an actress. Like, it, all your old school, like, just a very old school outlook of being an actress. Like, oh, this is the devil's work. Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Very religious. So... And Helen was getting more and more out of control as well. She would often belittle and humiliate John in front of his mother and children. She really took to like comparing him to her first husband who had won a silver star in Korea. Patricia's drama coach, who was very close to Patricia, his name is Ed Ilyanon, um, he had this to say, she was always insinuating that he was not the man her first husband was. His wife would decimate him and he would break into tears and go running into his children's bedrooms. Whoa. So that's how like fucking volatile their relationship was. They hated each other. Yeah. So this drama coach also would later say that List believed he was living among sinners and that he truly disliked his family. So did Patricia, the daughter, like tell, confide in her drama coach? Yeah, they were really close. Like he really took her under, nothing like disgusting. Like he was just like a mentor to her and she really confided in him because I don't think she had anyone in her family. Like her mom was basically like a recluse living in her bedroom. And an alcoholic. Uh, And um, her dad was just super religious and you couldn't tell him anything. Right. So Patricia and her drama group used to practice their plays in the List ballroom. This house had a ballroom. Holy shit. Uh, So he would see this behavior by List firsthand. He described List as seeming like frustrated that he no longer could control his children and that he constantly accused Patricia of doing marijuana and cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I feel like this is like such a common thing where you have this super religious old school parent and their children are like modern kids. Right. And like that you can't stop it because they're in the world where you can't control them anymore. But this really bugged list. So Helen was not only a heavy drinker, but she had also been diagnosed with a brain disease called cerebral atrophy, uh, which led to her basically being bedridden and relying even more on alcohol and tranquilizers to self-medicate. So she's a really difficult person to be around at this point. She's in a lot of pain, which as we all know, can make you fucking snap and Mm -hmm. like be short tempered. And she already sort of was not maybe the best temperamented person. So his life really begins to crumble in 1970. He loses his job at the bank, and then he loses a succession of other jobs that he takes on. By 1971, he was still leaving for work every morning, but unknown to his family, he would just stay at the train station all day reading, pretending he was going to his job. Oh, like, that's never a good so sign. So he's sitting in the train station reading, napping, and trying to figure out how he's going to get out of this. That's next level. Like That's always going to end up in a bad situation, it's right? It's never a good sign. So they have no idea that they're in financial straits at this point. They just think everything's normal. Um, So 
he does try to start an insurance sales business to increase his income, but he's like, as I mentioned before, completely like painfully shy person. He can't even have like casual conversations with his neighbors while he's out like doing yard work or something like that. And you can't really go into sales when you're that kind of personality. Like, Mm -hmm. so that business fails. Um, His rage kind of reaches a boiling point in the fall of 1971. Like the stress of it all is really fucking with him. So, uh, Patricia has a Halloween party that, that fall. And at the party, he really becomes angry. He orders his daughter to end the party. He physically kicks one of the young guests and oh like kind of kicks them out, like, like physically kicks them out of the house, like Jesus. basically kicking them. That would be so uh, embarrassing too. Seriously. Like as a teenager and your Can you dad. Can even imagine? <laughs> <laughs> like you're in your ballroom having a fucking Halloween party and you're fucking psycho dad. So yeah, Patricia was really embarrassed and the drama coach um, said that he, she often spoke to him about fearing that her parents' battles would end in violence and even death. Like that was like a thing she feared um, from her dad. So by November of 1971, he's on the verge of bankruptcy. He had to sell the family's second car and now he's siphoning money from his mom's bank account, which quick, quickly is depleted as well. So he's like bankrupting her too. I mean, she lives with them, but like, so, uh, so like around the 1st of November, he finds out that the bank is preparing to repossess his home and that's really the final straw for him. List would later say this about the stress he was feeling at the time. I grew up with the idea that you should provide for your family, and to do that, you had to be a success in the job that you had, or you're a failure, and that was not a good thing to be. Now, as I mentioned before, his financial woes were compounded by his paranoia that his family had been leading unholy lives. He believed it was time to ensure their place in heaven. He said later in an interview, I finally decided the only way to save them from that was to kill them. Um, But killing himself was never part of the plan, as he would later tell Connie Chung in this interview. Like, he did do this interview with Connie Chung, like, after he's captured later Mm -hmm. on. uh, And he says, like, a lot of crazy things in it. So this is from that interview. It was my belief that if you kill yourself, you won't go to heaven. So I eventually I got to the point where I felt that I could kill them. Hopefully they would go to heaven. And then maybe I would have a chance to later confess my sins to God and get forgiveness. So his plan is like, if I kill myself, I won't be reunited with them in heaven. But this way I will be, or I'll have that chance to be reunited with them. Well, that makes total sense. Yeah. John. (laughs) Look. (laughs) So yeah. I mean, whatever. Obviously, we know that's not how it works. <laughs> um, so, List is meticulous in planning out these executions. After making the decision, List would go on to say that there was no turning back. It just felt like D-Day. You go in, there's no stopping after you start. So once he went down the road, that was fucking it. Like he had his plan and there was no turning back. He finds an an old nine millimeter pistol that he had bought like a World War II type souvenir. And he also had a 22 caliber caliber, uh, pistol. He purchases new ammunition for these guns, and then he goes to a shooting range to target practice. Jesus. One night after dinner, shortly before the murders, he even asks his family what they wanted done with their bodies after they died. Wait, just casually? Yeah. So he says in this interview, I remember talking about funerals and cremation and burials. I thought I was being real clever. You know what? If... Your dad comes home and just starts out of the blue, start talking about what you want at your funeral. Yeah. Like he's asking you what you want on By your the pe- way. pizza. <laughs> yeah. You know, just casual. Seriously. So he also later says that an important part of his plan, and this is a quote, I would approach all of them from behind so they wouldn't realize to the last minute what I was going to do to them. I mean, it's so sick and like, it's just an awful. It's deranged. It's, yeah, I can't. I mean, I feel like a lot of people have trouble processing these family annihilators because it is so selfish and just like, oh, they can't live. Like, I can't be humiliated because of my financial situation. It's, it's so often is a financial situation, too. Yeah. It, it, a lot of times it right. is. Um, yeah. It's just. And that's not to say that financial struggles aren't absolutely devastating to, to families and to people, right. but like, there's just something. You still that, can't that's a bad solution. Yeah, that's not <laughs> I mean, a good idea. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me, but obviously a lot of this stuff I'm not going to find sensible because I'm not killing people. <laughs> uh, so 
On November 9th, 1971, he sends the children off to school, and Liz takes his two handguns out to the car to load them. Then he sets his plan in action. Now, this morning, Helen is in the kitchen, and she is basically having her morning coffee. She's just sitting at the table. Um, he walks into the kitchen, and he, he kind of like or he's in his, uh, so he loads the guns. Then he goes into his office. And like I said, this is a huge fucking house. He goes into his office. He kind of stands there very calmly before he enters the kitchen. Now he enters the kitchen. Helen's back is facing him. And as I said, she's just basically sitting there having her morning coffee. He goes up to her as she's sitting there. He lifts the gun to her head and this is in the book, this description. I feel like they talked to him about what happened. He raises it about 18 inches from her head and she senses it right as he does that and goes to turn. And right as she turns, he shoots her in the head. Now the bullet hit her in the jaw and knocked her to the floor, basically the force of it. Um, John describes it as being a lot of blood. I'm not going to go into it so Rachel doesn't faint. <laughs> oh, come on. It was, you know what? It wasn't, it's not that I can't handle gory descriptions of stuff. It was you, whatever fucking shit you pulled with that Selena episode, the way you described it, it was like, it wasn't that it was gruesome, so I fainted. I fainted because it was like so medical the way you described it. it was I was fucking, trying to be medical. No, that is worse for some okay. reason. Okay, so I won't be medical here. Now he fires a few more shots to like basically make sure that she's dead. Um, so it's quite loud and the mom is in the house, right? So she's kind of like up and she has like a little like his mom is in his the house. mom is in the house so she has like a little apartment kind of situation yeah. within their house like i think they call it like a mother-in-law suite or something like that where they have a little kitchen and all this kind of stuff so he leaves uh helen lying on the kitchen floor and he basically runs up to this mother-in-law or like where his mother is because obviously there's been some gunshots so he thinks she's heard this right so he has to act quickly here so uh, he basically barges into his mother's quarters. Uh, she's also making herself breakfast. She has the little kitchenette there. She's making toast. When he comes in, she's obviously startled because he doesn't typically just barge into his mom's private space. Obviously, that could be like really traumatizing. Uh, so she asks him, what was that noise downstairs? He kisses her on the cheek. And this is according to List, like Judas. So he kisses her. The minute he finishes kissing her, he raises the gun and shoots her above the left eye at point blank range. His own mom. His own mom. Now, she obviously, you know, falls, you know, fucking to the floor. Um, and he squeezes two more shots into her, um, you know, just to kind of finish the deal. So she's also lying there in a pool of blood in her little kitchenette. Um, he initially had planned to drag her downstairs to put all the bodies together, but uh, he realizes that he can't do that because she's too heavy. Like she's a big boned woman. He said this? Yes. I'll get into it later when I read his note because it's literally like an insane thing to say. But he can't move her downstairs. Um, so he basically drags her into like a hallway so she's out of the way um, and leaves her there. Now, he's like obviously, you know, fucking panicking and like, or not panicking, but like, you know, he's in the middle of this fucking insane thing to be doing. So he goes back downstairs and he starts cleaning up the blood. Like, or he goes back to his mom's room and starts cleaning up the blood and like cleaning up the thing, even though the, like no one will ever see it. It's like this pathological thing. He kind of has like OCD and I'll get into it more later. He has like an obsessive compulsive disorder and the cleanliness is a big thing for him. So he starts cleaning up the mother's apartment then he goes back downstairs to where his wife is and drags her into the ballroom. And then he starts cleaning up the kitchen because obviously the, his plan is that when the kids come home from school, they enter the kitchen like a lot right. of kids do. He wants to catch and them off guard. And he wants to catch them off guard. So he cleans the entire kitchen of the blood of the mom after driving her, uh, dragging her into the ballroom. Now, by the time all of this is done, it's 10 a.m. So Holy he has like shit. a long day ahead of him. Waiting for the kids to come home. I have not done this much before 10 a.m. in a long time. <laughs> it's quite a lot. So now he's waiting for the kids to come home. He um, goes to his office again. He um, starts 
doing weird things. He collects old photos and documents about the mansion and puts them in a neat pile on his desk. He writes a thank you letter to the original owner of the house. Um, He calls a woman named Barbara Bader, who had um, been like the carpool uh, lady, like who drove his sons to their high school. Um, And he tells her basically that the whole family will be leaving to North Carolina the following morning because Helen's mother is sick. So the family will be gone for uh, several weeks. So he starts kind of laying the plan for why these people won't be seen. And that's the excuse he tells a lot of people. So he also cancels the mail delivery. He like cancels the local newspaper. He also cancels the milkman, like because that's how long ago this is that there's still a fucking milkman. What is it, 71? It's uh, 71, yeah. Although that seems pretty late. Yeah. I know, the milkman stuff is wild to me. <laughs> it just leaves, like seems so... Like, unbelievable, like... That we had milkmen? Yeah, like, it's like a weird... Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure there's a reason for it, um, but whatever. Now it's lunchtime. Um, he's, you know, done with all this letter writing and phone calls, and he gets hungry because he hasn't eaten breakfast, Rachel. What does so, he eat? What does he eat? I don't know what he eat. I, he ate, but I tried to find it. I'm imagining it's a sad sandwich, right? Really? Like, yeah. Like a sad breakfast sandwich? No, like, literally, like, bologna on white bread. Like a sad sandwich that a guy from the 70s would make himself. Like a sad religious guy sandwich. Yeah, very plain. But he gets hungry and he eats in the kitchen where he just murdered his wife and cleaned up. Like he sits down and and has his like famished lunch. He probably worked up an appetite. Uh, Yeah. So now he uh, eventually he gets a call from his daughter Patricia that she was sick and she wanted to come home. So he goes to pick her up. Wow. Now... He had been worried about what would happen if two of his kids came home at once. So this is like a great thing for him. He's like, perfect. She's going to come home early. So I'll definitely be able to kill her before her brothers walk in. Like he definitely saw this as like a perfect solution. Right. Um, So he goes and he probably thought it was like God. It was. Yeah, exactly. He did. He thought it was like God's like way of telling him that he was helping him sort of implement this plan. And he thinks that a lot, like in his letter, it is definitely like a lot of God's will or God, this was a sign from God that it was like killing your family is never God's will. Uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, he goes home, he goes to school, he picks her up and basically the second she walks into the house, he shoots her. Um, he shoots her with the 22 caliber pistol this time. The, the first two he did with the nine millimeter. I don't really know what's worse or uh, whatever, but he basically shoots her in the jaw too. I feel like a lot of this is from behind, but they like turn and that's why they keep getting hit in the jaw, which is kind of fucking fucked up. Did he die instantly? Pretty much. Yeah. Like he does shoot them multiple times afterwards but it's just to be safe or whatever, not to be safe, but like whatever, to (laughs) To make sure, sure, to be sure they're dead. But they're all shot in the head initially. Um, So he also drags her into the ballroom with her mother. Now, next up is his son, Frederick, who he has to pick up, who's at like his after-school job. So he picks up Frederick from this after-school job, you know, the same thing. You know, the minute he walks into the kitchen, he's shot in the back of the head. Um, and dragged to the ballroom uh, with the rest of them. Now, his last child is John Jr., and this is where his plan kind of starts getting fucked up. Uh, John Jr. had a soccer game that was scheduled to be after school, but um, the practice was canceled because of the weather, something with the weather. So unexpectedly, John's coming home a bit earlier Now, the dad sees him coming up the driveway unexpectedly, and this is around 4 p.m., and he scrambles to get in position behind the door to get him the minute he walks in. Now, John must hear something. That's the speculation, because he is wary when he enters the kitchen. Like, he heard some kind of noise that made him sort of suspicious. Mm -hmm. So... The minute he um, comes in, he sees his dad pointing a gun at him and manages to escape the first bullet. Um, It does hit him, I think, in the back instead of the head. So he's down, like, and he's realizing that he's shot. Um, The father, like, is in a panic, and he tries to shoot him again, and that kind of hits him in a a place that sort of, like, obviously sucks, but, like, isn't, like, um, a death like a a death blow or whatever. And he's really frustrated that this boy won't fucking die. Like it's fucking, 
infuriating so to him. he's hunting his son. Basically, like within this room. And the son is fighting him and trying to get away. He's firing both pistols at this point, And the son's trying to crawl across the floor to safely, oh my safety. God. Like, But he's like a trapped. He's trapped in this little kitchen. How old is the, his, uh, this one? This one, I think, is 15. This is John Jr. Yeah, so he's the middle child. Now, uh, the father basically unloads both guns in his son and he will go on to say later how this was very frustrating to him because he was trying to do it where they didn't suffer, but obviously the son fucked up his plan and had to be in agony. Like it's a, it's like wasn't his plan for it to go down this way. So he's pretty pissed about it. Um, but eventually he does uh, sadly die. He stops moving. He's still on the floor. He gets dragged to the ballroom as well. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. According to List, I don't know whether it was only because he was still jerking that I wanted to make sure that he didn't suffer or that it was sort of a way of relieving tension after having completed what I felt was my assignment for the day. That's what he says in regards to unloading the guns and his son at the end. So he lines up the four bodies uh, in the ballroom. He puts music on an intercom system. And oh, it's God. like creepy fucking organ music, Rachel. Oh, no. Yep. And then he cleans meticulously the whole fucking house. Like every sign of blood, everything he fucking cleans. Now, at this point, he sits down and he writes a confession letter to his pastor explaining what has happened. Like he, in detail, tells everything that happened and why he did what he did. A uh, line from the, the letter, which I'll get into more later. At least I'm certain that all have gone to heaven now. If things had gone on, who knows if that would be the case? Um, a psychiatrist who later examines List, like once he's rearrested years down the line, um, describes his sense of neatness as being a result of his compulsive personality. And he also says that List shows no evidence of anything that approached genuine remorse. He's a very cold, cold man. List does kind of put together like a sort of tableau in this um, ballroom. Like he arranges the bodies in a way that's sort of like described as being in a cross. And he sort of has them touching each other's shoulders this as guy if is they're protecting. so lame, does he? <laughs> He's really lame. I mean, the understatement of the year. Um, he also puts them in sleeping bags and like ties them up to their neck basically like they're in these like warm sleeping bags and he puts Helen's um, arm on Freddie's shoulder as if she's like protecting him I mean it's just like fucking sick so at this point he kneels down by them and prays and he includes this in the letter by the way like I, I prayed for them like after <sighs> I put them in this tableau now now it's nighttime it's dark he's in this house with his murdered family and he has dinner Rachel. What does he have? I don't know. Obviously, I looked this up, but no one had anything. I have no idea. Meatloaf? I don't know. So he has some sad fucking dinner. He probably had something that his wife had made like the night before. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm imagining it's leftovers are just really like lunch meat kind of whatever, like just, you know, sad 70s food. Um, he does the dishes and dries them and puts them away. Um he feeds his children's pet fish that they had in the dining room, like a 20-gallon tank. And then he goes to sleep in the house with his murdered family, Rachel. The day after the killings, he then goes through the house and finds every family photograph and tears his picture out of every single one so they don't have anything to post on the um, wanted posters. This guy is so dramatic. <laughs> He's I mean, like, I get that that was like, I, but I get that that was like a strategy to him or something. Right. But you know, he like put on some music and like. Well, there's other pictures too of him, I'm sure. Like, it's not going to stop them from finding him necessarily. Well, aren't they going to see who owns the house? Yeah. I mean, it's They're going to figure out it was you. It's a creepy fucking thing to do. Yeah. Beyond that. Like, 
he uh, turns the thermostat down before he leaves. So the and bodies he don't leaves all the lights on in the house. Then he drives to JFK Airport in New York, and he leaves his car at the airport, but then takes a bus in the city to kind of like do a false like lead, like, like oh he, he got on the flight and left right. A month later, after the murders, his neighbors began to wonder why the lights in the family house go off one by one. Like, they've been on for weeks, and then slowly they keep burning out one by one by one. It's really creepy. And that's, like, the first sign that they're suspicious something has happened. Like, they're going out one by one. He He left every light in the house on when he left. So slowly they're burning out, but they're not happening all at once. So it's like a really... So the neighbors are like initially probably like why do they have all the lights on but then as they start going off it's kind of like wait what the fuck is happening oh my god it's so creepy it's really creepy and obviously the drama teacher is also someone who's kind of like where's patricia what's going on and he knew that the family had issues yeah so he is also sort of like we need to figure out what's happening and this here. is a month later this is a month later oh my so god. after the neighbors and the drama teacher kind of call the police and sort of create like some sort of suspicion or like want to have someone do like a well well-being check a or welfare whatever check. Where, welfare check the police finally enter the home on december 7th 1971 and they hear the organ music playing stop it yes he just left it he on? left it on the organ music is still playing when they enter the fucking house what a psycho that is like horror movie but it's on the soundtrack <laughs> not in the like in the scene like right. do you know what i mean like yeah, they enter the house and fucking creepy ass organ music is playing. I fucking hate this guy. So they go around the house and then in the ballroom, they find the bodies of Helen, 46, Patricia, 16, John Jr., 15, and Frederick, 13. Then they eventually find his mother in the um, upstairs hallway and uh, she was 85 when she was killed. Now, this case becomes a pretty notorious New Jersey crime. Like It's like... Not since like the Lindbergh baby kidnapping has New Jersey had a crime like this. That's sort of a national story because it's an insane crime. Uh, but they can't find him. Uh, he is goes missing for basically 18 years. No one has any visible trace of him. No one knows where he is. He seems to have vanished off the face of the earth. Police do kind of keep it going but eventually the case kind of goes cold. There's nothing they can really do. Like, but there are a few t- uh, detectives. Um, who kind of always sort of keep it open and are always sort of like following leads and stuff like that, but it kind of goes nowhere. The house, Breeze Knoll, is actually destroyed by a fire on August 20th, 1972, 10 months after the murders. And one of the things that was destroyed in the home was the ballroom stained glass skylight, which was by Tiffany's and worth at least $100,000, which is $600,000 or more in today's money. Honestly, how did this guy afford this place in the first place? I don't know, but it's kind of creepy that this ballroom had this like Tiffany, like it's just like the ballroom is so creepy to me, especially knowing what happened there. Okay, so in 1989, Union County prosecutors asked the producers of America's Most Wanted to look into this case. Now, the producers bring in a a sort of forensic sculptor named Frank Bender, as well as a criminal psychologist named Richard Walter. They study um, the photographs that they have of John List, um, and at the time of the murders, he was like his wife in his mid-40s, and he basically creates like what he would look like today. And this is 1989. So it's like a sculpture, like a head, like a bust, like, yeah. right? Like it's his head. They create this um, bust of him. This is what he looks like today. They also know that he wears horn-rimmed glasses or that's their speculation. So they create this whole profile. They create what he would look like today. And then Fox airs the segment on May 21st, 1989. 1989, and 22 million people watch this episode of America's Most Wanted. After this, they're getting tons of phone calls, and one is from a woman in a suburb of Richmond, Virginia, saying that it looks like her neighbor, Robert Clark, who is a church-going accountant who wears horn-rimmed glasses. Oh, my God. So agents go to the home of Robert Clark. Obviously, uh, they're shocked to learn he has a wife. (laughs) He uh, remarried another widow, like and a church going widow and they had met at like a church show social. Um, so she's shocked too. When the police show up to talk about her husband being on America's most wanted and he is arrested at his office on June 1st. 
after they, he basically denies it and denies it, denies it. So they had, their evidence was that just going off of what the forensic guy said, he looked like aged. Right. So they arrest him, but then they get irrefutable proof that it is him. They fingerprint him uh, and he's denying it. um, But eventually he does finally confess that he is John List. And that happens on February 16th, 1990. They finally know that they have him. Okay. So he goes on trial for the murder of his family. Now, at trial, one of the biggest revelations that came out, and this is like a lot of this stuff is him explaining why he did what he did yeah. and trying to get sympathy, like, hey, I was under a lot of stress, oh, like whatever. Okay. And the, the big, one of the big things he talks about is his relationship with his fucking nagging wife who put him through fucking hell. Now, the big revelation that comes out, which I had never actually heard, I mentioned before that uh, Helen had brain atrophy. Yeah. Now that could be caused by a lot of illnesses, including Alzheimer's and um, Parkinson's, just like a lot of things, infections. But he reveals during this trial that what really caused her brain atrophy was that she had untreated tertiary syphilis. Now, oh. this is something she contracted from her first husband who I guess got it when he was in the Korean War by yeah. having an affair or something. And she concealed this news or she concealed this not only from her husband, she never even got it treated by a doctor. She like got diagnosed and then didn't tell anyone or treat it for 18 years. If you know like anything about syphilis, you know that not treating it can lead to really fucked up like brain, like it's bad. And then once it gets to a certain point, there's nothing you can do about it. Right. So at trial testimony, Liz said that Helen had pressured him into marriage by falsely claiming that she was pregnant. Then she insisted that they get married in Maryland, which does not require a blood test to obtain a marriage license. So he, he basically is like, she tricked me into this. She knew she had syphilis and didn't tell me. As her health kind of gets worse, she doesn't say anything to her doctors. And then in 1969, she gets a checkup and everyone at this point finds out that she has late stage uh, syphilis. Maybe his wife was terrible, but you don't kill your fucking children. Right. You divorce so, the wife. Yeah. And she's she's really sick. Like, she's fucked up. Like, right. So she has this disease and then obviously she's an alcoholic, like I mentioned before. And that really transformed her into this like paranoid recluse. Right. Like, uh, she she had was problems. really bad at the end. She was sick. But so he basically considers this like a really a huge betrayal. Like, and I'm sure he's religious. So there's probably some element of like a sex, uh, an <laughs> yeah. STD being like even grosser to him. Um, as if it can't happen to anybody, just like if she got it from her husband, it's not exactly like <laughs> her faults. Like, but of course, he would definitely blame her. Now, a court-appointed psychiatrist, psychiatrist also testifies, like I said before, that he suffers from obsessive-compulsive disorder and that he only saw two solutions to this uh, situation, accept welfare or kill his family and send them that to heaven. I feel like there's a lot of Americans living with OCD that don't commit right. murder. <laughs> well, and also, like, welfare is not, like, the worst thing like a lot of people use welfare to get through a bad time in their lives. It's nothing to be ashamed about. Like, yeah. so for him, it definitely was this kind of huge shame thing that he would never, I mean, to be fair, people, there are a lot of assholes in this country who shame people for being on welfare. Right. But I'm just saying you shouldn't That's, be ashamed. <laughs> you should be I'm a be good ashamed. person. Right. But I'm just saying, no, it's, it's not an excuse. Thing. It's, it's not, not an excuse. And it's like, Take care, whatever. Like, it doesn't matter what he did. Nothing- what he did is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> no matter <laughs> That's what. That's the point. So on April 12th, 1990, he's convicted of five counts of first degree murder. At his sentencing hearing, he um, still kind of denies direct responsibility for his actions. He is quoted as saying, I feel that because of my mental state at the time, I was unaccountable for what happened. I ask all affected by this for their forgiveness, understanding, and prayer. The judge is like, no, I'm sorry. You have no remorse and you have zero honor. And after 18 years, five months and 22 days, it's now time for the voices of Helen Alma, Patricia Frederick, and John Jr. list to rise from the grave, which is also kind of a dramatic judge thing yeah. to say. But he's like basically like they're getting their fucking justice now. Good. Fuck you. And he gets a sentence of five uh, terms of life imprisonment to be con- uh, served consecutively. 
Um, so that was the maximum penalty he could get at the time. There was no death penalty in New Jersey. He files an appeal um, of these convictions on grounds that his judgment had been impaired by post-traumatic stress disorder due to his military service. I love when people are like, let me try this one. <laughs> like, that didn't work. Like, but my OCD wasn't good enough to you. But did I mention that I was in the war and have post-traumatic stress disorder? Like Again, uh, I live with post-traumatic stress right. disorder every day, and I have yet to kill someone or the desire to kill someone. So, yeah, try again. Yeah. I mean, all of these things are like but basically... That, but you're right. That is the classic where they're like, well, wait, c- can we try this excuse? Yeah, how about this one? Right. Did I mention I was molested? <laughs> like the Menendez brothers. Totally. It's kind of like, okay, but still, like, I've never murdered anyone. Not even my molesters. Like, <laughs> seriously, I could have gotten off for that one probably. Now, I want to go a little bit into this letter because there are some like really wild things in it. I mean, he basically... The judge submits this into evidence, his confession to the letter. And I think in the appeal, he tries to get it Wait, taken. the confession? The confession letter that he wrote and left behind on the scene of the to crime. To the pastor. To the pastor. Now, it, it's in the first trial. Part of his appeal is that that should have never been submitted as evidence because it had like a pastor-client privilege or something like that, which I don't even know. Is that like a real thing? I think- it's not like a lawyer- yeah, it's so like he, it's. I think it. I mean, I I think that's a real thing. Is it's like with your therapist, like they have a privilege unless you're going to hurt harm someone, right? But, but he harmed someone. I don't know how that works. Like with a confession letter. Yeah. So he, that's that's their mo. That but it, it doesn't work, by the way. Okay. So uh, apparently it's not. So, um, so he the letter is given. Uh, or left behind for this pastor. And it's basically, he begins the letter by saying to the pastor, whose name is Eugene uh, Raywinkle, I'm very sorry to add the additional burden to your work because he's going to be in charge of these funerals. So it's like basically apologizing, like, sorry to give you all this work this week, burying my family members, like, which is kind of a sick, but it almost makes sense for him. Like he's more worried about this propriety and like looking like a good person than what he actually did. He says in the letter, um, I leave myself in the hands of God's justice and mercy, but apparently he saw fit not to answer my prayers. So basically he is blaming God for not answering his prayers to get him out of financial uh, debt for what happened. I love that he thinks that he's not going to go to heaven if he commits suicide, but that he'll definitely get into heaven if he murders his whole family. Look, if I was running heaven, I would be like, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> There's no loophole. <laughs> like, yeah. Also, you do you, you don't get in for murder either, but I think maybe he's like, well, that's my best chance. Like, that's I, I don't what know. I was like, saying. Yeah, I was like, saying he does, you're, if you're not going to get in for committing suicide, you're definitely not going to get in if you murder your family. Right. He, I think he's hoping that God will forgive him at the pearly gates or the, whatever. I mean, this guy's conception of God is whack. Yeah. So he basically thinks that it's the best solution. He says that his saving his children's souls, as far as saving his children's souls are concerned, um, he almost compares himself to like Christ dying even for me. Like, oh, come on. Like this kind of stuff. This is all handwritten, by the way, on yellow lined paper, like on those legal pads um, that were kind of like used back in the day. Like he writes it all out. It's like five pages long. You can see it online. I was going to read it, but I literally could not read his handwriting. Is it like cursive? Yeah. And it's like not the best quality, but if you want to see it, you can look it up. He goes on to say, and I know that many will look only only look at the additional years that they could have lived. But if finally they were no longer Christians, what would have been gained? Also, I'm sure many will say, how could anyone do such a horrible thing? My only answer is, it isn't easy and was only done after much thought. Now, he does talk about how he only, he killed them from behind to like save them that, you know, trauma of seeing what he did. Yeah. Except for the Uh, son who was running for his life. And he does go on to talk about that. Like, I'm sorry that John Jr. got hurt more, but that's because he struggled. So the whole letter is like him, you know, alleviating his guilt and whatever, trying to make sure people knew he did it in the best way possible. So yeah, I mean, he goes on to talk about his financial um, struggles and like why he did it. He also talks about his worries about Patricia becoming an actress and how that would affect her Christianity. Um, so, I mean, there's a lot of like Christian Hallmark movies that she could act in. I don't think right. it would affect her Christianity and at all. And he also is upset about his wife who had stopped going to church at some point, but I think it was more because of her physical like 
struggles. Like she was really struggling physically at that point. Um, he also talks about the final arrangements, how he wants them to be cremated. Um, he wants the priest or the uh, pastor to keep the funeral costs low so he doesn't have to take on debt, I guess. Um, so very considerate of him. Now I'm going to come to the PS that I mentioned earlier. PS, mother is in the hallway on in the attic third floor. She was too heavy to move. I mean... He has to go there to add insult to injury. Right. My it's mom just such is a, too fat to dude, move down to the ballroom. I don't want that PS ever. Like, just don't even PS. Don't no even No one PS. needs to know why. Just tell them where I am. Right. Like, seriously. Uh, so, yeah. It seems like an unnecessary slight. Like, yeah. Um, for whatever reason, he chose to do that. And I, I mean, they did have a horrible relationship, but still. So... The appeal obviously goes nowhere. The court rejects all of these arguments that he makes. Um, He does later express a little bit of remorse for the crimes. He says, I wish I had never done what I did. I've regretted my action and prayed for forgiveness ever since. List does die in March of 2008 at the age of 82. He had pneumonia um, when he was... um, his death was reported. One of the local newspapers referred to him as the boogeyman of Westfield. And I feel like that's a good, he's awful person. Yeah, he sucks. He's creepy. Now, this story, uh, in addition to the movie we're going to talk about in a bit, he inspired a lot of things. And one thing I was kind of surprised to see was that he was sort of in, an, an inspiration, I think a few people were, for the character of Kaiser Sose in The Usual Suspects. Interesting. Yeah. Didn't we do someone recently who was a, a sort of uh, inspiration for that? We I can't remember. We talked about him I, maybe on our mini last okay. week. Okay. I don't know. Now, another interesting thing that's sort of crime-related is that there is a movie called Judgment Day, the John List story. Um, I did see that movie. It's like a TV movie. And John List is played by Robert Blake. Oh my God. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. (laughs) So another weird thing that I read was that um, John List was um, sort of one of of the suspects in the D.B. Cooper story. Like after they um, found him... They questioned him. The FBI questioned him. Dude, they question everyone <laughs> I know. about that guy. It's like any criminal that they investigate. They're like, maybe gets, it's D.B. Cooper. Are you D.B. Cooper? <laughs> it's so fucking stupid. I guess because he had the horn rim glasses and like... Yeah. But it's still, it's kind of like a wild, like, okay. <laughs> now, but the biggest inspiration point for this story, like as far as media or movies goes, was the movie that we mentioned earlier called Stepfather. And that stars Terry O'Quinn, who is from Lost. Like that might be his biggest role afterwards no this movie came out in 1987 yeah i know oh you said lost was his biggest role afterwards yeah afterwards like that's probably what he's most known for now is lost yeah right but that this was like from the late 87 um and that was like maybe his first big role that i remember seeing him in what a what a great like first big role. I mean, someone's probably yeah. going to add us and be like, actually, he played Macbeth in, but which he probably <laughs> well, I'm not, did. I don't doubt that he was in other things, but that's the first time I remember seeing him. Well, and like when Lost happened, I was like, that's stepfather. <laughs> like, well, also, what's great about the stepfather is that the very first shot of the movie, you get a really nice view of his dick. Right, and he's like cleaning up. He, basically, after a family annihilation, that's the opening scene. And it is right? a big dick. Yeah. No, he's got a nice dick. Uh, like stepfathers do. I mean, that's why everyone wants to fuck them in porn, right? Ew. <laughs> uh, that's the girls. The girls can't resist that stepdaddy dick. <laughs> um, so yeah, he. This movie, it's a great horror movie because it. It's like a lot of horror movies. Like I feel like the storyline is just amazing. Like it has a real storyline. The other thing about this, can I just gush about this movie for a sec? The other thing that I love about the stepfather is like visually it's one of the most underrated, gorgeous films. Like every shot. It has like a suburbia quality to it. That kind of like, I just mean like the color palettes in this movie are gorgeous. Like it's beautifully shot. Right. And he, um, now this movie came out two years before John List is captured. Wow. But the story was like a huge story. So, uh, they really nailed like the psychological. I read a, a like, um, I can't remember what site it was on, but I read like a movie kind of versus reality type thing where they were talking about the inspiration for it. 
And they talk about how 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 well they nailed his like the OCD because in this movie he's also like yes. very clean freak and kind of controlling uh, personality, which is very John List. He kind of has a John List look because he's just very like tall and thin and like has that kind of nerdy stepdaddy like whatever. Um, and basically the movie is this guy kills his whole family and then starts a new life with a new family and no one knows. Like the stepdaughter starts to figure it out. Basically, the stepdaughter has some weird feelings about him. Yeah, but that's sort of the sort of inspiration, like where John List also kills his whole family and then he disappears. Um, they they were sort of you know right on about him starting over somewhere I and getting remarried. They got that right, and yeah. they didn't even know. Yeah, how do, what like honestly like that is so crazy to me. Like thinking about like. Like, even if you find out that someone you're just dating is a serial killer, like, what do you do if you find out someone you've been married to for 18 years or however long literally murdered their former family? Yeah. Like, how I want to, I want to hear some stuff from his wife, his current whatever. I don't think she ever spoke about it because I'm sure it's like a humiliating (laughs) experience. How do you trust anyone ever again? That is awful. Right. And she was already a widow. Like he went for the same kind of person again. Right. Someone who was a widow and like probably was really happy to find somebody. Oh my God. Someone he met in church and he was like, oh, he's a great church going guy. He's an accountant. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So he definitely used his kind of nerdy appearance, I think, to kind of trick women to make them think that he was safe yeah uh so i mean the movie is like it has that great sort of inspiration but it is kind of like a slasher kind of a classic wouldn't you say like yeah i mean the storyline is pretty it's a good one for sure but it is a slasher Uh, and he's basically protecting himself from being caught like that's sort of the premise and the stepdaughter keeps finding things and then there's a point where she's like he tricks her Right? Like, I don't know. Let's not give it away. Yeah, let's not give it away. But it's like, it goes back and forth. And it's like this battle between his stepdaughter and him, basically. Now, there are like a few sequels. I don't, I might have seen the second one, but they're not as good. Did you see them? I haven't seen the sequel. Uh, So, this movie is really good. I recommend it. Me too. And I'm not even like, the horror movie junkie that uh, Rachel is. And I like it a lot. I would say that the stepfather is like, is generally praised in the horror community. It's like a very good story. Like it's a great movie. So I and it's genuinely it. creepy. It's scary. Yeah. So yeah, that's basically it. Like so, that's the story of John List, and he inspired the movie Stepfather. And it's both of them are pretty wild stories. Yeah. Um, and uh, I was so fucking excited for you to do this story. <laughs> today. I almost did it for a mystery a month ago. No, I'm glad we saved it. And for I didn't think this. I I honestly didn't realize that it had inspired Stepfather like so directly, like even though it obviously kind of makes sense until I was like looking up to research it for the uh, mystery. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to save that. <laughs> like I immediately there was like a few things I kept doing and two of them I'm going to do this month because when I found out they were kind of inspired by real crimes, I was like, oh, I'm saving it for October. And so. if you do want to um, go over to patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene, this month on Patreon will be all Halloween spooky related content. Yeah. So, so be more if you of that. want even more scary shit, go, go donate there. over there. Yeah. So, yeah, we're excited for this month. We have a lot of good things it's, planned. It's my favorite month for the show. And then we will be posting that audio for the live show we did last week as soon as we get it. Yeah, so we're I'll just bug waiting them tomorrow on it. Uh, again and see what's up with that. And then, yeah, that's that. Cool. Bye. Bye.